You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we are continuing through John chapter 11 this morning, 11 chapter, or chapter 11 verse 1 if you want to find your way there. And I want you guys to kind of know up front that this one is uh, highly personal for me. If it might feel like I get a bit more personal this morning than you're maybe used to uh, from me. But uh, you know, the thing of it is, is that uh, when I read this passage, it contains three of the uh, most significant and meaningful passages in all of the Bible as it applies to my personal life. So there's no way uh, for me to preach it to you any other way. A lot of you guys know, a lot of you guys probably don't, that I've got a wife who um, is afflicted with uh, a great number of autoimmune disorders. The chief diagnosis she battles is lupus. Some of you guys might know what that is. Some of you guys might not, but the crux of it is that her immune system doesn't like her, and so uh, it attacks otherwise healthy tissue. Um, And it's got multi-organ, multi-system involvement, just kind of attacks what it wants, when it wants, and... uh, that causes pain. And when it's not causing pain, it's certainly causing damage, and the damage is cumulative over time. So what you do for lupus is you shut down the immune system altogether. You take a class of medications called immunosuppressants, and they just kind of shut everything down, which leaves you susceptible to all the things that you do want your immune system fighting off. And so uh, she's either in pain or she's sick is what it comes down to. She's picking up the stuff that we can normally fight off. Uh, now, that would be tough in and of itself, but if, you're in the, uh, if you know anything about autoimmune diseases, you also know that they often come in threes. And so for my wife, uh, she also battles rheumatoid arthritis. You probably know what that is. It's kind of the same thing, only it's attacking her joints, not just her organ systems. And she also got something that we call interstitial cystitis. It attacks the lining of her bladder wall so that she gets these sharp stabbing pains in her lower abdomen. When you take all of this together, you kind of recognize that you've got to keep the thing shut down. So you're taking these immunosuppressants, so you're always sick. But she still gets these things that we call uh, breakthrough flare-ups, where the immune system still overcomes uh, the immunosuppressants. And when that happens, we take broad-based steroids to shut everything down again. But if you don't do that quick enough, it can do irreparable harm. And that's happened to my wife. She's got damage to her small and large nerve fibers, which causes shooting pains up her arms and legs at all times. Uh, So she takes different class of medications to kind of treat that, blocking the nerve pain, which causes her to get brain fog. And so she say, like, I'm not as mentally acute as I'd like to be, but my choice here is pain or brain fog, right? Totally separate from all of these things, my wife suffers from a third or fourth chronic condition where she produces a class of kidney stones that are called bruchite kidney stones. They're a kind of a unique form of calcium phosphate stones. Those are the normal type of stones that you might have. But these are denser and harder, faster forming and very large, and they're resistant to shock wave and ultrasonic lithotripsy, which means you can't just break them up the way you normally break up stones. You got to go in there and do something called ballistic fragmentation, where like a laser, you're going to blast them and then surgically extract the stones. I'm losing some of you guys this morning because you're like, I thought that Pastor Adam, not Dr. Adam, right? But here's the thing. I didn't get here overnight either, right? Ten years of walking with my wife through suffering of doctor's visits and hospitalizations. Do you pick up 
this jargon as you're seeking answers, as you're seeking healing. And one of the ways that I know that I'm in the presence of somebody who is either themselves battling chronic illness or who is loving somebody who's battling chronic illness is they start talking like a doctor. That they start saying things that norm, terms that normal people don't know because they're living on WebMD, searching for answers, right? It's hard stuff. Well, the result of these bruchite stones from my wife is that they are uh, less likely uh, to be rendered stone-free after they're surgically removed, and they are resistant to any kind of medical intervention that you do. And so there's heavy recurrence, which means that every year and often several times a year, my wife is passing stones or needing to go get surgical intervention in order to remove uh, these stones. And so if you can kind of picture a day in the life of my wife, it's just either pain or sickness most often, and it is persistent in a certain way. Now, I bring this up this morning to say to you that over these uh, 11 years walking through pain and suffering with my wife, I have heard or otherwise said, if I'm brutally honest, um, every well-intended but theologically errant thing that you can say to a person when they're suffering. And I have found as I've lived life among the church, that we have a woefully underdeveloped theology of pain and suffering. And so we just say stuff. And this stuff adds to suffering when it's not from the Lord. And that's why I say that this morning that there are three passages, three sentences within this passage that speak to me. I want to tell them to you up front that you might listen for why they speak to me. And understand that if you kind of meet any of the descriptors that I've talked about this morning, that you yourself have battled pain and suffering, especially in a chronic way, or have considered yourself a friend to somebody who is in that camp, that you might be ministered to by these sentences as well. And we're going to find our way there chronologically, but I'll give them to you on the front end. The very first one is this. Chapter 11, verse 3, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You write that down. He whom you love is ill. The next one happens a little bit further down. It goes like this, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You write that down. So when he heard that Lazarus, who he loved, was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's going to be a hard one. You're reading your Bible too fast if that's not, if that doesn't hit you funny. And lastly, I want to lead you guys to verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I want you guys to write that down. All right, let's make our way through it. John chapter 11, verse 1. There was a certain man who was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So setting up the scene for us this morning, we, all, we have understand the disciples are going to point it out in a minute that Jesus was recently uh, uh, narrowly escaping stoning by the Jews. Pastor Brett preached this for us last week as he made himself again equal with God and brought their hatred upon him. 
And so narrowly escaping their stoning, he's out baptizing again out in the area where, where he was baptized by John. And so Mary and Martha kind of know where he is, and they send word to him that his friend Lazarus is ill. We don't know a lot about Lazarus, but we know he was dear to Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all brothers and sisters, were dear to Jesus. And here John references a particularly intimate interaction between Mary and Jesus. It says that it was a Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. You may be familiar with this story. It was her brother who was ill. So these are beloved friends to Jesus. They showed great hospitality to him when he was passing through. Uh, Many believe that Lazarus was present in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he may be the unnamed man who was wearing linen, who runs off naked when the uh, guards arrive. We don't know that to be true. But it's these folks, the ones that Jesus loves, that send to him, they send to him, and this is the word that comes to his ear, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And the reason why this sentence is such an important sentence in my household and why it needs to be such an important sentence in your household is because the church today is plagued by bad doctrine that says that sickness is a sign that you are out of the favor of God. This is not so different from what you saw just several passages ago where they asked Jesus when he came to the man who was lame from birth, whose sin was it? his, or who was blind from birth, whose sin was it, his parents or his, that has caused him to be this way? And he says, oh, no, it's neither, right? But this is a super common trope, even within Christian circles, that we believe that if you're sick, you're out of the favor of God. Something's wrong between you and God that he is doing this to you. This is his displeasure with you. And so if you can just kind of sort out what it is, what sin he's trying to uproot or what displeasure he's trying to show to you, uh, that somehow you can kind of make yourself well by cleaning up that area of your life. Or secondly, maybe it's not that extreme for you, but it's more like God's trying to teach me a lesson. I'm I'm, I'm hard-headed, I'm prideful, I, I I sow him all these different kinds of things. And so he's using illness as a tool to make me better, to make me a better person and once I've learned my lesson, once I've achieved some level of righteousness, then hopefully he'll alleviate this hard lesson from me. He's using suffering as a tool to make something great out of me. You know, this is a pick yourself up by the bootstraps kind of mentality with illness where I'm kind of believing like, goodness, this is, the, you know, the Lord will never give me give you more than you can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. You know, that, you ever hear that garbage theology? The Lord gives us so much more than we can handle. And the, Jesus, the sisters send to him and they say, Lord, Lord, they acknowledge him as Lord. He whom you love, they acknowledge his love for Lazarus, is ill. They acknowledge his illness. These things are existing all together at one time. Christ has not surrendered his lordship, and so as a result, Lazarus is ill. Christ has not surrendered his love, so that as a result, Lazarus is ill. He is still Lord, and he still loves Lazarus, while simultaneously, Lazarus is ill. And the sisters understood this, and they addressed him as such, and we would do well to do the same. So again, I want to speak against this other lie that says, maybe it's not that Jesus doesn't love me, and that's why I'm ill. Jesus is unhappy with me, and that's why I'm ill. But Jesus isn't Lord, and that's why I'm ill. He's not able He's not in control. He somehow doesn't know. He's somehow unaware. 
He somehow doesn't care. He somehow wants to but can't do anything here. He's not Lord. That's the problem. He's a well-intending Jesus. He sees and he cares. He's heartbroken over it, but he's more like Adam. Adam, the husband, who cares that his wife is suffering, but I can't fix this. And so I look to Jesus to be a well-intending friend, but I don't acknowledge him as Lord, because it must be that he can't. Otherwise, why am I sick? Well, when Jesus hears this report, when the report comes to his ear, Lord, he whom you love is ill, he says this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I want you guys to hold on to that, verse 4, so that we can come back to it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he gets the word. It gets to him in time. Lazarus is not dead yet. He's gotten the word that Lazarus is sick. And he says his response to hearing this report is, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was, in the place where he was. Does this not hit you funny? Does it not? And guys, this is when you talk about long-suffering, when you talk about chronic illness, when you talk about a long waiting for deliverance, we need to turn to sentences like this. This is why it's such an important message in my home. That somehow it's not that, this is another thing that we tend to believe, that somehow my suffering is not that I didn't call out to him on, in time, that word didn't get to his ear in time, that I waited too long, that I was too far gone before I turned to Jesus for help. Word definitely got to him in time. In fact, it got to him too fast because Jesus was steadfast and that Lazarus needed to die. He needed to wait long enough that when he arrived, that Lazarus would already be in the tomb. Jesus could. Jesus knew. Jesus was able. Jesus cared. Jesus loved Lazarus. And he waited two days before heading back. He waited two days. And for some of us, guys, we, are, we have been waiting. We've been waiting for so long. And we are telling ourselves in our suffering or in our pain or in our illness or as we await bodily deliverance for some of the things that afflict us that somehow the delay of Jesus is his displeasure. That he hasn't come yet because you haven't done the requisite things in order to bring his favor upon your life. That he's waiting on you to have enough faith or to pray the right words or to do your part or to meet him halfway. Or maybe he's sent deliverance and you just kind of missed it and you're, and, you're, and you're getting it wrong. But we have no category typically for the idea that Jesus, that, that there's nothing wrong on your part. That Jesus is fully aware and of his own volition for his own good purposes, he stays two more days. This is a hard truth. I'm glad there's more scripture. Let's try to make sense of this. Verse 7. So he's waited two more days where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? 
again, just acknowledging that in order for Jesus to go to Lazarus, he has to risk his own well-being because they're actively in Jerusalem seeking to stone him. Bethany's just two miles off. And so this is risky for him, so much so that the disciples bring it up. We can't go back there, the disciples said to him. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And so he kind of rebukes his disciples here a little bit. And he says to them, are we going to start walking in fear? Is that what we're going to do? You're going to be with me, the light of the world, and say, hey, let's go under cloak of darkness. Let's wait until things die down a little bit. We, like for fear of the Jews, we're going we're gonna to fail to go to our friend here? No, we're not going to do such a thing. He says to them instead, verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, of course, we know that Lazarus has died, that that's what he means, that Lazarus has died. But Jesus here regards it as sleeping. For him, he's merely going to go and awaken him. But of course, this is confusing to the disciples, and I love how honest they are here. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. And I just kind of want to like, I think it's worth pausing on, like, they're dwelling with Jesus, like the Messiah, the Christ, like Lord Jesus. And they think he doesn't understand how resting works. They're like, oh, I understand Jesus. Uh, but if he's uh, just resting, uh, he'll recover. And so after this, Jesus says to them, says Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep, verse 14. So he tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, listen closely, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twins, says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him that we may die with him. When we think about Jesus saying to them, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there in order that you may believe, we start to see the kind of belief that he desires for his people as we are introduced to doubting Thomas in all of his doubting glory. As he says, Thomas called the twin, says to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You might be inclined to think that he means die with Lazarus. He means die with Jesus. Okay, they've just said, we can't go back there because they were just trying to stone you. And Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. They're like, oh, don't worry. We still don't have to go. People wake up from sleep. Really, we don't have to go. Jesus says, we're going. And Thomas says, all right, let's all go that we might die with him. Because Jesus is walking into his stoning. And, we're, and, and so let's all go die. And Jesus says, oh, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
I think this is kind of a small note, but if Jesus had gone to Lazarus before Lazarus died, he had a way higher probability of avoiding the Jews. Bethany was only two miles off from the city center, but he could have theoretically gotten to him in Bethany without being detected by a great number of Jews. But by waiting until Lazarus had died, this initiated the Jewish mourning process, and mourning over the dead brought crowds, swaths of Jews around the mourner in order that they would do their ceremonial act of mourning together. And so here it's been four days, and it says that, uh, that the sisters are surrounded by Jews from Jerusalem, as many of them had come to them to console them concerning their brother. So Jesus now going to them is going to be confronted by the people who the disciples wanted him to avoid. She's surrounded by Jews. The, the sisters are surrounded by Jews. And so he arrives, verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now this, of course, sounds like a really wonderful declaration of faith, and, I, and, I, and it is. I don't want to take anything from our sister Martha here. But she said, whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And then Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And there's no category for her that he means that literally and right now. She just said, whatever you ask, he will do. And he says to her, your brother will rise. And she immediately assumes that he's talking about the resurrection on the last day, verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is Orthodox Judaism. They believed in a final resurrection on the last day, that when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, that the temple will be rebuilt and all of the people, all of the Jews will be gathered and resurrected from the dead. So she's referring to their belief about end times. And Jesus says back to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You know, guys, this is obviously the crux of the Christian faith, right? That we believe that by faith alone in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, that we receive resurrection, right? That we will not taste death, that we are united with Christ in his resurrection, or that we will live forever in the presence of our creator, God, right? This is, this is the heart of Christianity. And Jesus is declaring it with his own mouth here. He says to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It sounds like he's talking about two classes of people here, doesn't it? That though he die, yet shall he live, and those who live, who believe in me, will never die. Well, there were two classes of people that were alive when Jesus walked this earth that, that, that he was referring to. There were those who died. Old Testament brothers and sisters who believed by faith in a Christ who would come, who never lived to see the first coming, and they died. And he said, yet shall they live. But everyone who lives and believes in me, speaking to Martha here, shall never die. Shall never die. You see, you, like the thief on the cross, the day that you close your eyes on this side of eternity will open them to your new life in Christ. He said, today 
you will be with me in paradise to that thief. Like, I don't know that we really understand this. I don't know that we really wrap our head around this. You see, we're going to see a reaction to Lazarus next week when we get past, you know, to where he actually resurrected. We kind of know how this ends. But like, do you understand that when we receive our new bodies at the resurrection, that when the, that, that, that when the chosen people of God are revealed to all creation, when the new heaven and the new earth come together, that you will see with your own eyes every last person in Christ that you saw die, and they'll be walking among you in their glorified bodies? Like, seeing Lazarus will be cool, but there's someone else that you're really hoping to see, and you will, if they were found in Christ. And likewise, those who grieve your death one day will have this hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that those who live and believe in him shall never die. And so when he asks Martha this question, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so I fail if I don't present the questions of Jesus to his beloved friends, to his beloved friends in this room. Do you believe? Do you believe this? And is your answer when you are asked, do you believe this, is yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Is that your answer? Because the way that we navigate pain and suffering tells us a lot about our theology of who Jesus is. And so the, the presence of pain and suffering in your life may be absolutely a diagnostic about where you stand today and your understanding of the Messiah. And what I mean by that is that if Jesus is a Jesus who heals or doesn't heal, who hands out affliction and sickness based on kind of teaching you lessons because he's trying to reform you into somebody who's worthy of something, then you are still believing in a relationship with Jesus that is based on your works. It is based on your performance, on your becoming something. And the great scandal of Christianity as compared to all other world religions, I mean all of them, is that you don't need to become something to be made right with God, that God became something in order to make you right with him. God not just became man, but he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. And now we look to him for our understanding of what it means to be human. We don't try to clean ourselves up in order to present to him as one worthy, but instead he brought himself low in order to become like us, that he might live the life that we were meant to live, die the death that we deserve to die, and resurrect from that death a resurrection that we desperately need, and we are united with him by faith in Christ alone. Jesus said it with his mouth, and so he calls us to believe, and here we see Martha say, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, this once and for all faith is a gift from God. But we are not released or freed from the doubting flesh until his second coming, until we are released from the chains of the flesh of this sinful and broken world when all things are made new. And so just because you are a Christian doesn't mean that in a moment you won't suffer, right? You won't struggle with this. You might, not, you might find that you kind of start leaning back towards a works-based ideology of your right relationship or right standing with God. We're all at risk of this. And this is where I need to caution you and just kind of say to you, you need to be here. 
And not like here Sunday morning here as, as much as I, I want to see that, right? But you need to be here, present with one another, in order that other people who have received new life in Jesus Christ, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, can see when you are running back to the flesh and running back to your sin and running back to your broken ideas about what right standing with God means so that they can speak the gospel over you again and call you to repent again and to return to the free grace that is available to you. To, to just put down those chains that you have been released from because you have not been saved into a spirit of slavery, but into a spirit of freedom. Verse 28, when Martha said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had gone out to meet him. So when the Jews who were uh, with her in the house consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. And so this interaction with Martha was private because she had gone out of Bethany since she heard he was coming to kind of meet him on the road. And then he calls for Mary. Mary, excitedly, surrounded by Jews, stands up and runs to Jesus. They're like, oh, I guess she's going to the tomb. And so she's followed by a crowd of Jews. This crowd of Jews, within it contained true friends of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus, and friends of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but not Jesus. Okay, both groups are in this crowd, and we're going to know that in a minute. So Mary came to where Jesus was, and she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is a difficult one to understand, especially with this uh, translation, if we're honest. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Deeply moved makes it sound like compassion. It makes it sound like a gentle kind of thing. It's a bad translation. This is the word that, you, that we saw in that pool of Bethesda when the waters would bubble up, it means agitated, it means frustrated, it means indignant. Not when Jesus saw her weeping, I want to make that clear, I'm going to come back to it, but when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was agitated in his spirit and greatly troubled in a negative way. He's angry. And there's been commentary, you'll read it, like a lot of different positions on this. I feel like when we take this at face value, when we just stay within the story and what we know about Jesus, it just makes a lot of sense. When he sees the tears of the Jews who were just seeking to stone him, mixed in with the sincere tears of Mary and Martha, who are grieved and looking to Jesus to be their rescue and to be their comfort, when he sees those tears mixed together, it troubles him. It troubles him in a real way. And we're, because I'm preaching this in two sections, I want to make sure that I just steal from next week a little bit so that I can enforce this a little bit. When he raises Lazarus, these people who are crying that he's dead are going to come up with a plot to kill him again. 
because Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was far too great a miracle, and it once again was bringing people to claim that Jesus was the Messiah. So when, they, when this miracle happens, some of these same folks, the plot to kill, Jesus, or to kill Lazarus in chapter 12, there are people crying today that he's dead who will seek to kill him once Jesus raises him from the dead. And this agitates Jesus who sees the future. And so he said, verse 34, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Well, some of them, this other group I was talking about, said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You'll remember that when he opened the eyes of the blind, this is one of those last interactions where the Jews responded by wanting to put him down. And so pointing back to this miracle, they're like, oh, he could do that. I guess he's not so great, is he? Until, of course, Jesus is going to prove that he is that great, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then they pick their stones back up. You see, when Jesus looks at a crowd, he sees the heart. He knows which camp we're in. Do we delight when he's unable, when we think he's unable? Do we delight when we can reduce him to somebody who obeys us? You see, the thing is, is we love power and we we love drawing near to power as long as that power serves us or yields to us or can be controlled by us. But an unwieldy power, one who claims ultimate authority, one who does whatever he wills to do, and this can be tough, guys, because this Jesus with his unwieldy power who has just claimed that he can do whatever it is that he wants to do because he's going to raise a dude from the dead here in a minute. He made conscious decisions to ensure that he was dead by the time he arrived. A lot of us will spit a Jesus like that out. It's just true. Because we want to say, Jesus, if you were really good, you'd do this. If you really knew best, you'd do this. You'd do it this way. You wouldn't do it that way. If you really loved me, you'd love me how I want to be loved. You'd love me how I think I need to be loved. Can we not see that Jesus is the author here of both Lazarus' death and his resurrection? And can I also just say one more thing to you guys here? That's only offensive if you start believing for a second that Jesus hasn't been the author of every death that ever happened, did he not pick the moment that each of us would be born and the moment that each of us would die? Is he not the one who has been sovereign over life and death from the beginning? But when he directly applies that power, we find it super offensive. What is it that we stop believing about Jesus that suddenly that's very offensive to us? Are your days numbered? Are the hairs on your head numbered by your Lord? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they sure are. He not only knows it, but he wills it. He is in sovereign control of every moment of human history from beginning to end, and it's all serving this chief purpose that the Son would be glorified to work our way back to verse 4. Jesus heard it and he said, this illness doesn't lead to death. He said that, of course, regarding a guy who was going to die. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
So listen, whatever garbage theology it is that we're believing about suffering, about death, about, about ongoing pain and plight, what we know is that it serves to glorify the Son, that He might, listen, you might not be liberated from your suffering on this side of eternity. You might not. I pray that you will, and I know that He can, because this like I said, he just raised Jesus from the dead. We see all, or Lazarus from the dead. We see all kinds of healing from Jesus. But you might not until you are. Like, you might not until you are, church. Like, you will shed your sin like a snake sheds its skin. You will shed every affliction that strikes you today. You will do that, and not far off, any day now. You'll hear the trumpet sound and Jesus will declare enough and he will return and make all things new or you will be united with him by your death, which is really your eternal life. That's, ha- that's coming for you. So it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. That's the promise that you have. I want to, in closing, kind of lead you guys into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 18. That's uh, 2 Corinthians, rather, chapter 4, verses 5 through 18. I'll read this to you. For what we proclaim, what I proclaim, it's not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you." And since we have the same spirit of faith according to that which has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, um, regarding my wife's illness, I was... um, couple of years ago, just looking at it with some clarity. I wrote a poem. Sounds like this. It's just a short little thing. It says, My bones, they are the clink. I'm trapped behind these iron bars that keep me from beach volleyball, long walks, and not dropping my children. My bones, they are the clink. A little square of cold cement. So cruel are these invisible bars, some say it's all in my head. To this I hold that my present suffering is nothing to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. 
I will shed this cage and fly, and then by choice, I'll kneel. There's a sister in the faith who I love. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. A lot of you guys probably know her. She was paralyzed at a young age. I think it was a horseback riding accident or something like that. And so she's paralyzed from the waist down. And um, she tells a story about a time that she was brought to a church service and the pastor was um, uh, kind of inviting everybody to take a posture of kneeling in prayer. And so the room all dropped to its knees and they prayed. And Joni, unable to do that because her legs don't work, is stuck in her wheelchair. And she said, not so much feeling bad for myself. I looked out at this beautiful portrait of worship in the room and lamented that I was unable to participate in this expression of lowly estate before my God. I just wanted to kneel and I couldn't do it. And so she said regarding her future body that she will receive when she worships in heaven, she said, I am so going to want to dance on those legs and run with those legs and play with those legs, but the first thing I intend to do as a gesture of worship to my king is to kneel. That when these legs finally work, what I'm going to do is not use them to say to my king his worth. Like, we're going to shed this thing and it will have done only, it will serve only to beautify and perfect your worship in eternity. Like your expression of worship to your king in eternity will be forever formed by this light and momentary affliction where for a moment you walked by faith and not by sight, but then forevermore these things are a thing of the past. I want to encourage you in that this morning, church. There are people around you who are suffering. Put hands on them and put, point their eyes towards the Jesus who is making all things new. That's my encouragement for you this morning. Join me in praying and laboring over those things this morning. And then we'll take communion as a remembrance that he broke his body that he might make ours and our spirits well.